On this episode of Movies from My Life, we're discussing two very different Alfred Hitchcock films. The first is 1948's Rope, and the second is 1963's The Birds. Alright, so before we get started, I just want to apologize for the recording quality issues with the first part of this episode, which is our discussion on rope. It's entirely my fault, but I didn't want to lose this discussion because I thought it was a really fun talk, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, The back end of the episode will be the normal quality that you know and expect uh, when we talk about the birds. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely. And the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything. Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. My choice is 1948's Rope. I'm here with Brandon and Devin. Hello. So I picked Rope. A quick synopsis here would be there's a guy named Brandon and a guy named Philip. They are uh, intellectuals, academics, and they decide to commit the perfect crime in order to demonstrate their intellectual superiority. Um, It's a kind of a brand of nihilism. They believe that they're... uh, their intelligence endows them with the right to take a life and not have to suffer the consequences because they're smart enough to get away with it. So the film begins with them just finished strangling their friend and uh, they put his corpse into a box and then they invite some friends over for a dinner in which they serve a buffet from the box. The, uh, Enjoyment they're supposed to be deriving is from the fact that nobody knows they're, you know, helping themselves to dinner from, you know, food that is on top of the dead body. So they invite their former professor, uh, played by Jimmy Stewart, who's, um, who has taught them this kind of uh, elitist attitude. He subscribes to the same notions, and uh, he, he shows up to the party and starts spewing the usual kind of... Um, theories that he that he taught them back in school like you know elitist stuff and what, there's a doctor there who takes exception I believe that he's supposed to be he's David's father he's the guy they kill his father yeah so uh, Mr. Kensley I believe he's supposed to be thought of as also an intellectual but he's from the other side he, he's diametrically opposed to uh, Jimmy Stewart's character he's a humanist He's sympathetic. They argue uh, several times throughout the movie. Um, kind of a lofty philosophical argument, but while that's going on, it, you also have the drama of the uh, Brandon and Philip trying to get away from I'm murder. a very serious fellow. Then may I ask, who is to decide that a human being is inferior and is therefore a suitable victim for murder? The few who are privileged to commit murder. And just who might they be? Oh, myself. Philip. Possibly Rupert. 
Oh, I'm sorry, Kenneth. You're out. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm serious. So are we, Mr. Cantley. The few are those men of such intellectual and cultural superiority that they're above the traditional moral concepts. Good and evil, right and wrong, were invented for the ordinary average man, the inferior man, because he needs them. But obviously you agree with Nietzsche in his theory of the Superman. Yes, I do. So did Hitler. Hitler was a, a paranoid savage. His supermen, all fascist supermen, were brainless murderers. I'd hang anywhere left. But then you see, I'd hang them first for being stupid. What makes the movie special to me, what makes me recommend it, is the fact that, well, the technical proficiency, the fact that there's only about ten cuts in the entire film in long seven to ten minute takes. I mean, Hitchcock, he really, he's known for his meticulous planning, but with this film he had to um, plan every single camera movement. He had to have prop guys move the furniture around as he moved the cameras around. And he was really relying on cues that the actors would give each other to move the cameras back and forth into certain areas of the room. There's a long sequence where Philip goes over to the piano. He's gets progressively drunker as the night goes on. And um, it really zooms in on him and his isolation and depression. Uh, you see him, he pretty much regrets the act immediately, whereas Brandon uh, revels in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's uh, just, as soon as people show up, he lights a cigarette and says, now the fun begins. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much cartoonishly evil. <laughs> so... Um, some people think that this is a bit of a experiment for the sake of experiment, that there was not really any reason for Hitchcock to do the long takes. Uh, Hitchcock himself kind of, you know, rejected the film later, tried to keep it out of theaters. I imagine if he'd lived long enough, he would have tried to prevent it from a release on VHS or DVD. Or... But critical reappraisal has been kind to it. It's, um, I think... Uh, as the as the news sort of tightens, not to use a really cheap kind of <laughs> metaphor, like as you know, James Stewart's uh, character Rupert, as he starts to realize what his former students have done, the the sense of desperation escalates, the drama escalates, and uh, correspondingly, the camera work gets a little closer into you know close ups or medium shots because. Now, things have gotten a little more claustrophobic. He, Hitchcock probably could have gone a little more all out with that. You know, the camera work corresponding to the, the drama. Yeah, I would concur with that. I find it interesting, we were talking a little bit before about how this is one of the few films that, um, although you definitely empathize um, in, a, in a skewed perspective from that, which you would, in a normal, like in a normal day-to-day -day situation, if this had transpired, it's one of the few films in his, uh, let's say, American filmography that, or the American portion thereof that that um, you don't you don't have actual point of view shots, etc., from uh, your protagonist or antagonist or any of the characters right, in the film. Right, yeah. You are truly a fly on the wall. It does lend to that claustrophobic feeling that you're talking about. Yeah, and you and I were talking about this earlier off air, like. You, for whatever reason, the audience's sympathy seems to rest on Brandon and stay with him. Absolutely. So, I mean, he's a terrible person. The first time you're introduced to him, you're seeing him commit murder and dispose of a body. But for some reason, we want him to get away with it. He's very magnetic. Even yeah. even when he wraps the uh, the father's books that he's given to him, he's gifted to him. He invites him over to... Yeah, the victim's father is invited over. To, and, to see the books. Yeah. 
and to perhaps purchase them. And he gifts them to him and wraps them in the rope that he has murdered his son with. The very murder weapon he used. Yeah. Which he had been keeping in the kitchen, which you see him drop into the, as the, I love that shot of the kitchen door swinging and he drops the rope into the fucking uh, kitchen drawer and like very gingerly slams it shut. Yeah. And almost prances into the living room again. Right, so prances. Into like, the parlor. Yeah, it's, a, it's the perfect combination of like coiled menace and charisma. Mm-hmm. And so you go with it because... The victim's father is kind of, for all his humanity and and moral, uh, you know, rectitude, he's really kind of an impotent, unlikable person. Mm-hmm. That was probably a deliberate choice. So yeah, you, you have no choice but to keep your allegiance with the bad guys in this one, despite the speech at the end that Rupert uh, Jimmy Stewart's Rupert gives, in which he, you know, he says that. He espoused those ideas and believed in them until he was faced with the reality of them, which was seeing the body for, uh, killed by, you know, students of his. So he shoots a gun out the window, presumably to attract the police, and two guys are sit down and wait to be arrested, pretty much. Hmm. It's a pretty desolate ending. Oh, no. Rupert, I couldn't believe it was true. Rupert, please. Please what? Listen to me. Just listen. Let me explain. Explain? Do you think you're going to explain that? Yes, to you I can. Because you'll understand. Understand? Rupert, what? Rupert, remember the discussion we had before with Mr. Kentley? Yes. Remember we said the lives of inferior beings are unimportant? Remember we said, we've always said, you and I, that moral concepts of good and evil and, and right and wrong don't hold for the intellectually superior remember Rupert? I mentioned to you I take a little exception to the fact that you picked the only film in, in Hitchcock's catalog where the murderer's name is Brandon <laughs> yeah thank you um, but yeah in any case it's uh, it's a really interesting piece uh, it's it's one that's a lot more character driven than you would expect in his work and, and when you think about Hitchcock and you say okay so he, you know that he's a director that, that doesn't really think that highly of actors or at least the skill thereof Yes. and this is, is, is a film that seems to let those actors play a lot more than he's accustomed to in many situations it's much more character driven um, much more dialogue driven than you would expect out of his work. So even though there is a lot of technical mastery, it's all very subtle comparative to a lot of his other stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The technological mastery, yet it still relies on performance really, really heavily, mm-hmm. which usually wouldn't be the case with him. Yeah. Also, no blonde. Yeah, yeah, no femme fatale, no, no damsel in distress. I mean, we have the classic Hitchcock cameo at the beginning. He's walking down the sidewalk, but also he's on the his profile is on the billboard outside. Oh, really? For a weight loss product, yeah. For a weight loss product, I like that. <laughs> Poking fun at himself, but yeah, John Dahl is the guy is the actor's name who played Brandon. He was he's terrific. You go to his Wikipedia page and it says he's known for that performance. Yet he acted in very few films after this, which probably goes to show that it wasn't really received that well a lot of the complaints at the time centered around the fact that it would have worked better on the stage it would have it does very much play like a like a like a play it does yeah, yeah. it really does but there's a lot of movies like that I mean mm-hmm. it's just one of them like I'm a huge fan of 
uh, what's the movie? Uh, the Big Kahuna. Mm-hmm. Danny DeVito and Kevin Spacey takes place in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carnage. Yeah. Uh, Polanski. That's a good example. But that is a play. It started as a play. So... I don't think it's necessarily... It's kind of a backhanded insult to say this is good, but it would work better on the stage. But I think this goes beyond just uh, curiosity. You know, It's not just an exercise. I think that it's, it's a legitimately good movie mm-hmm. and a good entry point into the Hitchcock catalog. Don't have too much time. It's the darkness that's got you down. Nobody ever feels really safe in the dark. Nobody who's ever a child, that is. I'll open these, all right? There, that's much better. It's consistent with the rest of his great stuff because it has to do with manipulation, it has to do with obsession. These guys are, well, particularly Brandon, is um, he wants to carry out his worldview to its logical conclusion, which to him, in his skewed like, perception, involves killing someone and trying to get away with it because it gives him pleasure. Hmm. So uh, a lot of... Uh, you could argue that a lot of Hitchcock movies have like a hidden moral, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this being one of them, of course, Vertigo has one. Rear Window, just about the uh, the dangers of taking an obsession too far. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the Philip character goes, because like we've seen Farley Granger work with him in, uh, say, for example, Strangers on a Train, similar kind of situation in terms of his character's a little uh, panicky, although he's he's more of a protagonist in that film, I suppose. It's a really interesting performance watching him fall apart and like you said almost instantaneously. Yeah. As soon as as soon as uh not even the guests arrive, but as soon as um the maid uh, arrives back. Yeah. He's constantly fretting uh, from the beginning. Yeah, even before the dinner party, you're right. So, I mean, he couldn't handle the pressure. Started drinking. He goes crazy when uh anybody makes mention of the fact that he once strangled a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Jimmy Stewart's character had witnessed him do it, he says he didn't because he doesn't want to. Kind of guys come off as the kind of person capable of strangling. <laughs> Despite him totally being the person who's capable <laughs> yeah. of strangling. Yeah, so he's like, it's just a great performance of like, uh, like amped up, uh, completely obvious guilt. And it's fun as an audience because we know exactly why he's behaving like that, but nobody else does mm-hmm. until later. Can you guys think of anything else in in Hitch's filmography where it's it's like this, where you empathize with the the killer or the really the antagonist more so than than the hero of the film who is arguably Rupert in Hitchcock's catalog? Yeah, not, certainly not Psycho. <laughs> certainly not North by North. Oh man, I can't think of one. No. Not the birds. <laughs> You're on the bird I, I, side. I empathize with the bird. Disrespecting. Yeah. In Jaws, apparently, the, the, that was a novel. Jaws was a book first, yeah. and apparently it's really badly written. So much so that the characters are just, you can't identify with them, and a lot of readers have said that they wanted the shark to win. Mm-hmm. Which is funny. I certainly didn't feel that way in the movie. No. <laughs> Not after watching them devour that captain. The um, It's interesting that you bring up the book thing. It's always funny when you're talking about Hitchcock adaptations from books like The Birds, which, Devin, you did last week. Um, when, you, when you're talking about 
his his book adaptations, he does this thing where you, he'll read the book once, mm-hmm. and then he'll forget about it kind of thing. He'll never read it again, never open it, never consult it, doesn't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I think it's interesting, and it's, it's something that... Um, there's two ways to interpret it. One, it's like it's my way or the highway kind of thing. And two is that it's just about making the best film. Yeah. And and I hope I lean towards the latter, I yeah. suppose. It, and it's really easy to... Um, emotional memory tends to be a little more reliable. He's always going to remember how it affected him. I mean, I know Sean Penn, what he did into the wild only read that book once. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Maybe he was taking a page out of Hitchcock's M.O. Mm-hmm. As long as you hit on the right emotional resonance that you remember from the book, you mm-hmm. probably succeeded. <laughs> Instead of trying to stick to it scene for scene. Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? The Janet character. The... The schoolmate, she used to date Brandon mm-hmm. previously, and then, of course, she uh, was dating David at the time when he died. Right. And previous to that, she was seeing Kenneth. Yeah. And they, and Brandon, the whole film is trying to kind of rekindle this relationship between Kenneth and Janet, um, manipulating all the way along and dropping these hints like something tells me that David won't be here. Mm-hmm. These sorts of things. It's very maniacal. It's very interesting. Um, it just shows that how inherently manipulative he is, and um, gives you an interesting uh, look at, say, for example, the concept of of someone who has these sorts of traits, and the idea that that they would uh, seek to escalate. You know, yeah, um, that obsession, like he talked about, certainly an interesting factor in, in the film, and. Um, his need for control and his need for superiority. Yeah. And uh, particularly uh, intellectual superiority. Right. Yeah. And, and that's... It's a really interesting piece. I, I like it very much. Yeah. Yeah. And doomed from the start because, I mean, if you're the kind of person who needs uh, your intellectual superiority to be acknowledged, there, the entire... The fact that they murdered someone and got away with it he wouldn't be satisfied with that. He would want people to know that he got away with it, which depends upon him getting caught. Mm. So the entire thing is a doomed exercise, and maybe Philip realizes that, and that's why he's so despondent. Mm-hmm. Any, any final thoughts on uh, convincing our listeners why they should go out and watch Rope this evening, sir? That's about all I have. Um... One other thing I would mention, it's one of Hitchcock's shortest, and it feels like a made-for-TV movie almost. You wouldn't have to dedicate too much of your time if you were reluctant to get into a Hitchcock thing. But um, You may even find it on YouTube. You might even find it on YouTube. But no, that's about it. Not encouraging people to go looking for it, but maybe. Hmm. Now, mind you, I don't hold with the extremists who feel that there should be open season for murder all year round. No. Personally, I would prefer to have cut a throat week (laughs) or strangulation day. (laughs) Probably a symptom of approaching senility, but I must confess I really don't appreciate this. All right, guys, so remember to come back and check out the feed tomorrow. 
we'll be talking about John Carpenter's The Fog and John Carpenter's Vampires. We hope you'll join us then. My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my forthcoming lecture. It is about the birds and their age-long relationship with man. It will be seen in theatres like this across the country. In my lecture, I hope to make you all aware of our good friends, the birds. Theirs is a noble history, and through it all, man has played a conspicuous part. Uh, hey guys, uh, this is uh, your boy Devin. I'm uh, going to be discussing uh, a little bit of Alfred Hitchcock with you today. I'm here with Brandon. Hello. And Danny. Hello. So I'm going to be talking to you guys specifically about The Birds. Okay. Which is my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie because it is a fucking riot. It is hilarious. <laughs> I, I mean, I went into this with a very open mind. Uh, and I and I don't any, – anything that I say about The Birds I'm sure doesn't apply to anything else in his catalog. I know that he's done a lot for, for, the, uh, for the medium and I can respect that. Uh, the medium of film. Mm-hmm. The moving picture and whatnot. The moving picture. The movie, as they, the kids are calling it. As the kids it. calling it nowadays, yeah. Uh, but the birds specifically, I made some jokes going into this uh, about uh, comparing it to Birdemic. Mm-hmm. Like that was going to be funny because Birdemic is such a shit movie and the birds is such a, a film classic. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And this movie is Birdemic. It is. <laughs> It's it's um, totally predictable. Mm. Off the get-go, five minutes into this movie, she's disrespecting birds. It doesn't take it doesn't take five minutes for her to start. Uh, it's, it opens on a pet shop uh, with Rod, and uh, he comes in, and, and Tippy pretends that she works at the bird store. Yeah, and so she's trying to wax smart about birds, and he's asking her all these questions, and she just doesn't give a shit because she doesn't care about birds. She's trying. She the reason why she's in this bird store is because she's trying to buy a minor bird to teach it how to say shit and fuck, and then give it to her her niece. That's a plot point. <laughs> she's disrespecting birds right off the get go. The story of man and his friends, the birds, is filled with many fine examples of ways in which these noble creatures have added to the beauty of the world. So the bird, the the woman who runs the bird shop, she keeps on telling her the minor bird's coming in soon. It's going to be in, they're, they're on their way with it right now. And uh, Tippy keeps trying to tell her, um, you know, no, no, I, I really think you should deliver it. And this uh, pet shop woman's the only person in like the entire movie whose motivations and everything seem to <laughs> seem to come through in her character. Uh, you find out in the pet shop that Rod's uh, Sue and Tippy uh, over a broken window or something. So Tippy buys some lovebirds for him and goes to deliver them in Bodega Bay, and that's that's where you you start. Oh, now why would he do that? Most peculiar. What on earth? Yeah, fast forward, we get to Bodega Bay, and she uh, rides a boat out to the Brenner residence, drop off these lovebirds, gets smoked in the head by a seagull. And that's the, you're, you're 25 minutes into this, into this, <laughs> this masterpiece, this 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, 
when she gets smacked on the head with a bird. And I, I mean, you know, I guess this this maybe built suspense for people in like '63, but I'm I like. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm sitting here in in 2017 saying, okay, like we get it. The birds don't like this woman. You, we can get on with this. Yeah. Can I ask you about the breaking and entering on that exchange? By the way, yeah, she breaks into uh, into Rod's house, uh, Mitch Brenner. Yeah, it's a character's yeah. name um, to leave the lovebirds there. Which, yeah, like like they just kind of gloss past it. It's like this romantic gesture mm-hmm. in 63, I guess. I guess in 63, if you wanted to show someone you loved them, you broke into your, their house and left them a present somewhere. <laughs> Cover your faces! Cover your eyes! Like, okay, so she gets to Bodega Bay, right? She goes into the shop and she says, do you, do you know Mitch Brenner? Yes. Okay. Where does he live? He lives across the bay. What? Across the bay, and finally he has to ex- escort her outside <laughs> and point at the. It's the, the only house. house across the bay. There's yeah. only yeah. one. See that one house? <laughs> it's that one. And uh. then, she, and then she's like, "How do I get there? Drive on the road. Drive on the one road around the lake." <laughs> she's like, "No, well, no, they'll see me coming. Is there any other way? Well, I guess you could rent a boat. Okay, can you call for a boat for me?" <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll call for a boat for you. No problem. By the way, do you know what the fucking sister's name is? Alice. Are you sure it's Alice? No. Are you sure it's Alice? Yes. How much do I owe you? No money. Are you sure it's Alice? Yes. Okay. No. But here's the thing. <laughs> if you drive 20 minutes down the street past the school, she'll tell you what's up. Okay. Off I go. Have my boat ready in 20 minutes, man, I'm paying nothing to. Goes down the road, has this interaction, plays all her cards with, with Annie, and then comes back and gets in the fucking boat. Is everyone in this town insane? No no money is is changing hands here at any point in this trip. So she's getting this fucking shop owner to do all this kind of minion-type shit for her, free of charge, the boat guy's just like, here's your fucking boat. <laughs> Money? No. Yeah, mon- and not in Bodega Bay. Yeah. <laughs> Things were very different in 1963, I yeah. guess. You stalked and, and <laughs> then broke into the house of people you loved. That yeah. was how you showed it. Yeah. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know. It seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. What happened, Mitch? Go hitter. A uh, go? So it's... I mean, you get past that, and then she gets back into town, and she gets smoked uh, by a seagull in the head, mm. which kind of sets things off. Um, and Mitch says to her, too, he's like, oh, it seemed like he did that intentionally. Yeah. Well, obviously. Yeah, obviously, given her track record. Yeah. Then, then you get this side plot of, uh, of her trying to... Um, you know, trying to get in with the Brenner family. Mm. Um, so she stays over there for dinner. She's staying with uh, with Annie Hayworth. And then the birds uh, start attacking uh, everyone. She's at a birthday party for uh, Mitch's uh, sister. Whose name isn't Alice. Uh, it's Kathy. Kathy. They get attacked by birds outside. This is maybe 40 minutes into this, this two-hour film, and the rest of the movie is just, you know, superimposed birds, like, green-screened on top of 
a frame of people doing, you know, doing something unrelated to what the birds are doing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter with them? What's the matter with all the birds? After Melanie Daniels, uh, Tippi Hedren's character in the film, has been hit in the head by a seagull. So we've already established, okay, birds hate Tippi. <laughs> so now we've got to take that a little bit further and explain to you how, how the birds are just, they're just off right now. You know, they're just off a bit. So so you get into the, the Brenner household. Tippi Hedren uh, is coming for dinner. And um, Lydia Brenner, Mitch Brenner's... Uh, Really clingy mom. Uh, yeah, she explains to them that the chickens aren't eating the feed. She has to make a phone call to the guy that sold her the feed. And this is like this is like 10 minutes of the movie, or maybe less. I mean, no. it's like five minutes, maybe. But it's just a one-sided phone conversation. You, you're just listening to um, to the person who doesn't know anything about what's going on talk to somebody who who does have some idea about what might be going on uh, you know it's, I, I mean this is this is like the way the phone conversation went okay it's like the feed you sold me isn't any good uh-huh uh-huh well no you, i mean you know when birds aren't eating the feed it's it's not the feed it's it's or it's not the birds it's the feed uh-huh well the those other birds weren't eating it well you see there it is there it is i mean it has to be bad feed and it just goes on like that. And I – there's two or there's three phone calls in the movie that are like that where you're you're listening to somebody literally just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> while the plot exposition is happening on the other end of the phone line that you're not allowed to hear. And, yeah. and people call this – like people people say that this is like, you know, a masterful like move to build suspense in the movie. It's not. It's just it's just annoying. It's just annoying that <laughs> the same plot exposition is occurring. We just have to make up the other side of the phone conversation in our head. We know what it is, mm -hmm. but we just have to kind of assume – the specifics like we know generally the the guy who sold her the chicken feed is saying well i mean you know there was this other uh guy who called me and said that the the chickens didn't eat their feed so maybe it's uh you know a general bird issue and and then the mother you know you hear her rebut like oh well you know it's never a problem with the chickens gotta be the feed it's just like why why is it my job to to <laughs> to fill in these, these, yeah, and you as a viewer, you're waiting for someone on screen to get caught up to speed, yeah, and then you can move on, <laughs> yeah. Horrible, <laughs> horrible. So I'm, I'm loving this. Just listen to those lovebirds, Mitch. One of the earliest attacks is, uh, is in the, the Browner house. Um, and it's sparrows. They come in through mm -hmm. the fireplace, fireplace. and uh, there's just like thousands of them, <laughs> like because they basically just take it a camera and just like put a giant sparrow cage in front of it or something, and then just shook it. Yeah. And then, so there's just birds all over the frame, and you have to watch Rod Taylor stumble through this room with his shirt off, waving it around in a circle in the air. Yeah. Like, I guess, knocking down birds for, like, a good 10 minutes. Mm. Like, it just keeps going. You mm. keep thinking, like, you're watching this, and the number of birds that are on the screen is is obviously not uh, diminishing as he mm -hmm. whips his shirt around. 
So you're, I mean, the feeling that I get when I'm watching a scene like this is just this scene isn't going to end. There isn't going to be an end. He's just going to fight sparrows for like <laughs> two hours. And then eventually they just all disappear. And the cops show up and he shows them this this bird. This is like one of the birds that he knocked down. The, the cop is like, oh, it's a sparrow. And he's like, yeah, the, the, you know, they're not aggressive. And the, the cop tries to calm him down. I'm like, no, 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 sir. All right. What am I supposed to do about this? You got a thousand sparrows coming down into the chimney to attack you. Like, this. <laughs> This fucking movie. Mrs. Bundy said something about Santa Cruz. About seagulls getting lost in a fog and flying in towards the lights. We don't have any fog this morning. So I'm sitting here laughing my ass off at this point, and it it just keeps getting worse and worse. They got caught in a diner at one point, and um, thank God there's an ornithologist there um, who who gets gets the facts straight about birds for everybody. Uh, which really, uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. You run into the expert, like mm-hmm. the expert has to come and clear everything up. Uh, except in this case, all she all she says is just that, like, no, no, birds aren't aggressive. Like they're attacking everybody. You're in the town where they're attacking everybody. What are you? T- what birds are you talking aren't about? Aggressive. I repeat. Look at the gas. That man's lighting a cigar. Hey, you! Mr. Oh, don't drop that match! Oh yeah, it's his, it's his best. <laughs> okay, it's my favorite. Yeah, that's fine. Continue. So they get to the diner. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm, I'll I'll catch you up now. So everything has gone to shit. Um, you know, the birds are attacking everybody at this point. They get to a diner and they get caught, and uh, they're all you know. They talk to the ornithologist and, and all that kind of stuff. Then they look out the window and they mm-hmm. see a gas station attendant pumping gas. And, uh, you know, everybody's just kind of watching in horror as, like, a a gull just kind of dives down and just hits him in the head. And he does, like, a full-on, like, spin around with the the gas hose going and fall on the ground. (laughs) Like, he's just been knocked completely unconscious (laughs) by, like, a single masterful swoop in by this bird. It's beautiful. So then the gas starts starts running down. And everybody in the diner runs to the other side of the diner to look out the other window where the gas is flowing to. It's all going towards this one car that has a guy standing outside of its door lighting up a cigar. (laughs) And so uh, everybody – they open the window of the diner and everybody's like, no, no, like don't throw that match. And he just looks at them, just looks square at them as he shakes his match and then just throws it at the ground. (laughs) Like like, (laughs) – Whatever these people are shouting about, it can wait. It can yeah. wait just <laughs> it can wait till I throw the match. <laughs> then, then I'll, I'll find <laughs> out what they're uh, what they're saying. What that's amazing looking right at them. But but the way it plays out, it's like did the birds plan this? Like is that what you're suggesting to us Alfred because I'm not on board with that. Okay? Like you're suggesting to me that the birds are trying to burn this town down. Which they do, and, and, and yeah. you know, and, and uh, like, how would the birds know that this, <laughs> this guy, guy is who's smoking asshole. a cigar is kind of not attentive? Help me get the children into the house. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to sh- like 
shit all over this movie uh, too much. I, I do actually – I didn't uh, – I, I have a thing with old movies mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about before. I don't generally like them. I, I don't know uh, – like they, they can't keep my attention. I'm a child of the, you know, early 90s uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, – a lot of these regards, I just, I, I you know, I, I sit down to watch an old movie and if it's paced slowly or if it's just longer than I'm I'm used to, I, I just get restless. This movie, I, it kept me. It kept me going because mm-hmm. it, it is just like I, I swear to God when I, you know, I, I, you know, watching this on my own at home, I was laughing my ass off. Yeah. I mean, just watching this movie, you know, by myself, when that gas station attendant does that big spin, I swear to God, like, spit take material here. It's fucking losing it, dude. Yeah. And it does kind of build out, like, you know, the template that many horror movies have have taken, you know, after after that point and kind of run with. Like, we were talking about zombie movies. The, um, yes. Very much like a zombie movie. Yeah, like this this group of people that seems to get like you have the survivors kind of meeting up, mm-hmm. um, and and you get to experience how how uh, you know how they're seeing this separately, and then uh, you know they get together as a group and they've kind mm-hmm. of all got their story, like the old fisherman that <laughs> explains that the gulls have been out of control lately. Mm-hmm. I, I, I birds I, I will say in their defense they are terrifying I mean yeah. a lot of people look at this oh, yeah. movie and they're like oh birds that's not scary bird have you ever looked at a bird they move really they may have been dinosaurs weird and twitchy their you eyes know? are very unsettling yeah just black empty eyes um they it, they're they're a great great uh, uh horror movie kind of like a horde of of villains to use. So anybody who's going to bag on on the idea of using birds fuck them. Yeah. Respect. The birds don't even like. It's not even like they're doing this for food or anything. They are just assholes. Like they do just because they kill Annie Hayworth and they just leave her there, and she looks just totally normal. Like she's not. She's got some pecs, I guess. But yeah, it's also amazing the sliding scale of damage that people can take in this film. (laughs) We talked about Mitch, the scene where Mitch is trying to get that fucking door closed. Uh, the 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 shutter on the window. He's trying to get the shutter closed, and he's just pulling it for twenty minutes while these <laughs> seagulls pack at his fucking arm. And like, even at the end of the film, like, um, to be Andrew's character, Melanie, she's in the upstairs bedroom, and they are just fucking destroying her. <laughs> Apparently, that take, as well as a lot of stuff on this film, was just. Uh, like incredibly grueling for her. Like Hitchcock was just fucking like destroying her on this flick. Just like given real, like we were talking about kind of uh, reminiscent of, you know, uh, The Shining with Shelley Duvall, what Kubrick kind of did there. Um, I know you're not a huge fan of To Be Under's performance here, but um, it is interesting, uh, you know, how grueling the shoot was for her, especially considering like she, she, did another Hitchcock film years later, or not that long later, in Marty. So it's <coughs> it's funny 
But yeah, I, it's it's amazing the sliding scale that sometimes people can just get fucking pecked for like two days and they're still alive, like her. Although she's pretty fucked up at the end. Um, and then obviously there's like four pecks on on Annie and she's done. She's dead. <laughs> what if she isn't dead? They just put her in the house. Like, no, no, I'm not dead. I'm fine. Let me come with you. No, no, she, you're dead. You're dead. Close your eyes. You're, you're dead old, to me. You're old news, Annie. Yeah. Get the fuck inside. <laughs> Back to San Francisco. Did you hear anything on the radio? It's, it's all right. Come on. Nobody knows anything. Nobody knows why they're doing it. No one knows if it's going to continue. Uh, it works really well. Like, as much... Uh, I like this kind of ending a lot more than you get when, when you hear this, like, oh, it was a three-day outbreak, and this bird did this, or ate this, or mad cow disease, or whatever it is. Um, avian flu, whatever. And then, uh, and then, oh, okay, no problem. We can move on. It's so much more terrifying when you don't know. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, Maximum Overdrive, Stephen King's movie, uh, obviously tries to take the birds as a template right down to the diner scene and Mm -hmm. everything. But then at the very end of the movie, it's like, yeah, there was, you know, some kind of solar... Well, that, yeah, that has an open the, opening scroll that tells that. Too. Is it opening or is it yeah, end? Yeah, it's an opening. Scroll, oh, I so. thought it was the end. Okay, but yeah, it's too fucking much. It'd be much better if we didn't know why the trucks and toasters were coming to life. I like to think about the world that like they live in in mm-hmm. the birds. Like after this point, mm-hmm. like you just you go outside to get in your car to like go to work, and you just like shoot off a pistol <laughs> in the air while you're walking. <laughs> You, like, get to the office, you just take off your jacket and wave it around your head as you walk. Shoot another in. couple. Yeah, you'd have mm-hmm. an umbrella for birds. There'd be a lot of product related. Yeah, there'd be a lot this of bird the world protection. You live in. Or thinking about, like, how the movie could have ended if the military did get involved, because they mm-hmm. talk about that a couple times in the movie. But, I mean, I'm watching it laughing my ass off again, just thinking, like, what what is the military going to do? <laughs> like, yeah. you're just going to, like, I'm just picturing, like, well, you know, like, Sniper pulling up with like a machine gun on the back, just <laughs> just shooting birds. <laughs> like, what a an amazing ending this movie could have had. Oh man, <laughs> flamethrowers. Yeah, just <laughs> it's funny when you hear them talk about it on the radio, and they're like, "Oh, there was a bird attack in Bodega Bay." In other news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mitch is so pissed. He's like, "That's fucking it." <laughs> Just as an aside, uh, there's a posthumous William Burroughs book called And the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks, which came from a BBC News article where the very dry British newscaster said, you know, there was a fire at the London Zoo and, you know, it heated heated up the tanks and the hippos were boiled in the tanks. Good night. And he just left no detail. That was it. That was the end of the newscast. William Burroughs listening to this was like, it seems like he should have said something after that. Yeah. Like maybe just how horrible that would have been or something. Instead of just, okay. <laughs> so same with this. Like, yeah. And everybody's going to die from birds. Bird ep- epidemic in Bodega Ro- Bay. Roll credits. Good night. <laughs> and that's the news. <laughs> <laughs> What's that fucking Simpsons? Kent Brockman starts an episode with the... Uh, which, if true, means death for us all. Yeah. <laughs> all right, here we go. One. Two. Three. There you go. It's it's a 
larger scale than he's worked on it in a lot of ways. It's this big budget film in a lot of senses with the special effects as they were, per se, they were right? good for the time. Yeah. Okay, but they're, yeah. And um, he, he's, he's just, he's stretching himself a little bit more. The, the style of narrative, the, the characters, these sorts of things. It's, it's, it's really interesting. It's really interesting when you take a look at it and you try and put it, try and contextualize it as the last kind of super big notable success in his catalog. And you, you ask yourself why. Um, it's very interesting. I and think, he's coming right off Psycho, too. You know, and I think as well, a lot of his earlier movies may have been a lot more cerebral. Mm-hmm. And I think that the parallels that we're drawing between the birds and, like, you know, um, your sci-fi, you know, made-for-TV movies and, and stuff like that, is that this is just, like, a, a digestible horror movie for the general public. Mm-hmm. Like, a, a complete fucking moron can go see this movie and be like, ah, hey, check it out. Like killed by the birds, huh? Like <laughs> yep. just as much as, as you know, um, someone can read into it. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe that was just his goal. You know, mm-hmm. maybe he did want to just make something for the masses mm-hmm. after, you know, after a career of, of movies that may not have been as approachable to a general mm-hmm. movie going public. Is that the case? I don't it's know. Possible. I mean, I agree with that assessment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said before, uh, Vertigo is one of the most convoluted plots of all time. It got around that. Hollywood had this law, maybe the US government, I don't know. You had to, a, a murderer in a film had to go punished. This was for a long time. Wow. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. It had a name. Vertigo got around it, even though the murderer doesn't go punished, because nobody understood what the hell was going on. It was just mm-hmm. so confusing. Um, so. Uh, also because you never see the murder take place. Yeah, but also it could be it could be one of two people, arguably. Yeah. Right? But like with this movie, it's just like, yeah, there's no – I'm sure there have been graduate theses that have been written on Hitchcock, but probably not on this book or on this movie. You'd be surprised. Right? There's quite a bit of writing on this. You can academic – you can approach anything academically, I guess. Just But The Birds is just an outright popcorn disaster film like – Na- is it called natural horror when it comes from nature? Like Jaws and Bird? Yeah. Sure. It's a pretty forerunner. Also, like the whole idea of the, you know, the leaking gas tank and the explosion. I would love to trace that back. This has got to be yeah. one of the earlier examples of it. You see it everywhere now. Yeah. Every yeah. John Woo movie. Don't drop the match. <laughs> Drops match. What's up, guys? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Devin, this was your pick for Hitchcock, your film. Your must-watch from Hitchcock's catalog. Yeah, Any final dude. thoughts on The Birds, 1963's The Birds? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I bag on the movie a lot, but again, I mean, I, I don't think that it's, it's a movie that you should avoid. I think it's absolutely what you should watch, especially if you're like me and, and a catalog like, uh, like Alfred Hitchcock has is daunting to you. Because, again, like I, I look at a lot of these movies and I know how much – so many of them did for film, and I think absolutely he's, he, you know, he can, uh, you know, create uh, suspense much, much, much more effectively than than so many others of his his uh, his era. You know, he's um, it's one of the greats. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I you know, check out the birds, you laugh your dick off, It'd be a good time. <laughs> Or if you don't have a dick, you laugh whatever you got. 
You laugh, laugh your laugh your bits off. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, instead of laugh your dick off, can you have me say you will laugh your you'll just laugh your shit up. Uh, you you laugh uh your privates off. I feel like that was a little bit too uh you'll long. laugh your groin off. You will you'll just fucking laugh. You'll die laughing. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic watch. Sweet. Where can people find you on uh, Yield Interweb? Yeah, you can find me on the Twitter uh, at your homeboy. It's YR underscore homeboy because Y-O-U-R space uh, H-O-M-E-B-O-Y was uh, not valid. Okay. Um, <laughs> you can find me on the Twitter at Leafs Love Hurts. That's a uh, fact. Yeah, that's that's a fact. That's where you can find me. That's a fact. And I'm at Not Brandon Fleet. Uh, please don't forget to leave us comments, uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that cool stuff uh, on whatever podcatcher you listen to this sort of thing on, whether it be iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, um, Google Play Music, Player FM, etc., etc. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. If we're not there, let us know, and we'll get there for you. And then when we get there, leave us a comment, rate us, all that stuff, because we like it. We like reading this stuff. It feeds our egos. Um, reach out to us via email at show at moviesroommylife.com, and obviously visit the website, moviesroommylife.com. And our show Twitter is at Mermel Podcast, at MRML Podcast. And now also, Worth noting, uh, anytime you use the hashtag on any sort of social media, whether it be um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, if you use the hashtag Movies Through My Life, uh, we're also going to be stalking you that way as well. So feel free to uh, get uh, send us some photos or naughty stuff or whatever. Hashtag get Movies Through My Life. We're going to see it. Maybe we'll uh, try and get a conversation going about uh, whatever it is that you're sending us. Hopefully not anything too fucking creepy. This has been an interesting one. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Devin. He's gone to the bathroom. Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't you love when you drink a big glass of orange juice and then you burp and it just tastes like orange juice? Uh, yeah. Good feeling, <laughs> let me tell you.